Hello, everyone. We're now live. Welcome back to another episode of the HR Leaders Podcast, the show where we explore the future of work with industry experts and HR executives from the world's leading global brands. Super excited about today's live show. We're joined by Walmart's Chief People and Corporate Affairs Officer for Walmart Canada, Nabila Iksabalan. Welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, Chris. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. You're making me feel bad now because I've got a stand-up desk, but I never use it. <laughs> and here you are. <laughs> you make I, it... I tend to sway, though. That's the only downside. So if I start to sway, that's that's the byproduct. Of yeah. I bought this like crazy mat, which clearly doesn't get used, where it's like a mat that goes under your feet, but it's got like bumps in it. Like, so it kind of re recreates as if you was hiking but it does the same thing. So when I do use it at home, it looks like I'm just walking around the room all the time and guests are like, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm just walking back and forth um, as well. But thanks so much um, for joining us. And first and foremost, congratulations on becoming a LinkedIn influencer as well. You. you beat me there, so I'm slightly jealous. So I'm not gonna be honest, so it's fine. <laughs> but honestly, it's, it's one, uh, all of the amazing work that you and the team are doing. I couldn't think of anyone else that deserves it more and it just amplifies this in incredible work that you're doing and the message that we're trying to put out there. So uh, congrats. Thank you, Chris. Uh, no Your inspiration too. The way that you are connecting and amplifying so many amazing voices in the HR space is, is remarkable. So but thank you for the recognition. I appreciate it. For those that aren't aware of your, your, your work and your kind of personal journey uh, around mental health, tell everyone a little bit about yourself personally and your mental health journey to where we are now. Sure, absolutely. So I am a self-described uh, recovering workaholic. That is not a medical term. I feel like I have to say that disclaimer. Um, it's just a term that I've applied to myself in my own journey of recognizing that I had a significant imbalance in terms of how uh, I was conducting my work, performing my work, and protecting my personal well-being. Um, so it's been a 10-year journey for me, Chris. Um, I had my first anxiety attack a little, um, a little uh, less than 10 years ago. And since then, I've been working to really kind of re recover my sense of self, my sense, my personal well-being, um, through a process that I can share a little bit more about, you know, which I call my baseline. And um, one of the things that I think has really brought this journey to a head after the last ten years is that I've decided to, um, you know, speak openly about it, which is something I hadn't done until I, I joined Walmart Canada. So when I joined Walmart Canada, I decided I was going to stop pretending. And I was going to use my experience and what I've learned to try to change the narrative across the business spectrum. And I introduced myself to 100,000 Walmart Canada associates as a recovering workaholic. And since then, I've spoken openly. And it's a personal aspiration of mine um, to create a workplace for the next generation where people can both um, achieve professional success while protecting their humanity, their individuality, and their well-being. So um, I would also say I'm not... Uh, you know, it's a journey every day for me. I think you know that too, because it's me too. a lot of personal, it's an everyday journey for me. So it's not something I've mastered by any stretch of mine. Yeah. But part of it, right, is talking about it. Like it's continuing to talk about it. For me, that seemed to be the biggest, uh, you know, thing uh, since I started speaking about my anxiety. I haven't had a panic attack since. Mm -hmm. Whereas before it would build and escalate because I would be, I would have no one to turn to. So I was so scared of telling my colleagues, friends, family members, what, it, what I was so like ashamed of it, that that would in turn compound distress and anxiety. And then it would lead to more anxiety attacks. But now if I feel like way I can pick up the phone to you, to, to, to any of the network and say, look, I'm just not feeling great. Like, you know, I need a day off or can you just, can you just talk to me? Cause I'm feeling really anxious and I need someone to talk to, you know, and that in, in itself has been a game changer. 
but sure. it takes a long time to get it took me a lot you know basically my whole life you know since i can remember to get to that stage where i felt like i, I could, could talk about it and it it happened in a way that i didn't expect which i feel like happens yeah. to a lot of people for sure yeah, yeah. And for me it was you know i i remember i i um i left uh, ikea my previous employer which i was i was at ikea for 12 years and um, I had built up a brand of my, my, you know, at Ikea, I was this, you know, person who could take the most difficult problems. I would travel wherever, whenever, however I needed to be, you know, I would do multiple assignments at the same time. I, I kind of built this brand of, you know, that I could do anything, work however long was necessary and just make things happen. And Ikea is an amazing organization that really cares about their people. So I know I had people around me that loved me, cared for me, would be, have been there had I um, said anything. But my, I had built this brand that I was kind of superhuman. And I just, I couldn't, I didn't have the courage to kind of poke any holes into that while I was there. Um, but when I, you know, had this break and I was thinking about entering into Walmart Canada, that's when I felt like, okay, here's my opportunity to really kind of introduce myself in my, my fullest truth. And um, yeah, and, and it was very scary. And I think it's still moments where it's really scary, but when I have the choice to choose between people's judgment and kind of the fear of being vulnerable, um, I choose to believe in people's um, compassion. And that's just how I make those, uh, make the leap on one side over the other. Yeah. And mine was kind of, uh, your one was a lot more intentional <laughs> than mine was. Mine was like a middle of a live stream on LinkedIn with Tim Munden, you know, chief learning officer, Unilever, incredible, incredible guy who was, and Paul Farmer, the uh, CEO of Mind, the mental health charity in the UK. And they were both being super vulnerable, sharing their personal stories and challenges, mental health. And here I was struggling, you know, for my whole life, basically, and just kind of in this, in this kind of, point where I was like, I just accepted this is life. And was like, I'm just gonna live with this. And they were talking about it. And I was like, wow, if these people can do this, who are in, you know, these huge organizations and have hundreds of thousands of employees, eyes looking at them and they can do it. That it was during that podcast where I kind of started talking about how I was feeling. Hmm. And it was like live on LinkedIn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like my wife didn't even know. We've been together for 14 years. My wife's been with me for 14 years and she had no idea. So like those times where I didn't turn up for that party or that, you know, that that meeting or that family gathering, it was like, oh, Chris doesn't care. Or like hmm. those days where I didn't come in and my employees like, where are you? And that's why and it wasn't I didn't care. I was just like, I didn't want to tell anyone. Or yeah. at some points I just couldn't leave the house because I felt so anxious that I, I, there was moments where I'd get on the bus, go down the road to work and feel so anxious. I'll get back on and go straight home again. And I was like, I can't tell no one that. What are they going to think of me? What are my employees going to think that they're CEOs, you know, but the, uh, the misconception is that everyone's going to judge you and think you're weak, but it's the opposite. Yeah. And that was the biggest surprise to me. It was the amount of people that came and said, I'm feeling the same way. Mm. And um, actually saw it as a sign of strength and say, thank you so much for being brave for sharing it. And it was like yeah. the opposite, all of the fears <laughs> that I had, it was like the complete opposite of that. Um, and it, it empowered other people around me, friends, family members to start talking about it. Even during lockdown, we had a, a, a weekly call with all of the guys because men are not great at doing this, probably some of the biggest culprits. And all of a sudden I'd known somebody's you know, friends for my whole entire life. And all, there they were sharing with me that they're in counseling or that they've been struggling. And I was like, wow, these are my best friends, my best friends. And we don't talk about these things with each other, let alone our colleagues at work. 
as well. That's, so, that's yeah. the thing about, you know, I think well-being and the different dimensions of well-being is that, and if we just speak specifically about mental health, like mental health is a global pandemic. I mean, there isn't anyone that isn't either hasn't struggled with it at some point in their life or doesn't have an immediate family member that's struggling with it or, you know, maybe at the verge of, of it. So it, it's just so pervasive. And I think just your like your experience, once you start talking about it and stop to stick, we destigmatize it, you, you, you see the same thing. It's like everyone, you know, has an experience to share, but we just, we don't know it because up to this point, I think in a lot of organizations and a lot of circles in our personal lives, we just, we haven't said anything. Yeah. Did you have a similar response? Was people like, really you, Nabila? <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> the person that says yes to everything and all the projects. <laughs> At Walmart Canada, they, they don't, the, the Walmart Canada organization doesn't know me any different. So they, they, I int- literally introduced myself immediately. on the first call immediately. And, and not only did I say I'm a recovering workaholic, I pulled up a slide, which I call um, my uh, wall, my failure wall of fame. And I talked about my some of my more significant failures um, in my career. And again, I think that's also something I'm really passionate about. Like when we introduce ourselves as senior leaders or executives, we only talk about this, like the progressive nature of our careers. And it's like this one way ladder where you only go up and and that is totally wrong and i think what we need to also do especially for a lot of young people is tell and share with them that that's not at all how careers develop and there's a lot of downs and a lot of struggles and we never talk about those either so i think we give um you know a lot of people the, the a misperception of what professional achievement is and what professional success is so i i talked about my my struggles and my failures across my career journey when i introduced myself and that was also to really encourage this conversation around failures um and one of them was you know i compromised my personal well-being for for my career i was going to ask I, you that do you think you'd be where you are now in the position you are now without sacrificing that yeah so I, this is like the golden question i get this question every time oh, do I talk you? About it. okay yeah. all right because everyone's like oh yeah super nice that you can talk about it you're a c-suite executive of yeah yes that's yeah it's a good point it's a fair question so, though yeah, yeah for sure it is a very very fair question i still do believe i would be where i am today it just would have taken me longer so i was a very i mean i was leading 130 million dollar business when i was 27. I was this, you know, the CHRO of IKEA US at a very young age, you know, so I'm 38 and, you know, again, and I've been, this is my second time in a C, C, uh, CPO role. Um, so I do still believe I would have gotten to those roles. It just would have taken me longer. And if I could go back to my younger self, I would have, I would have made that trade off trade off because um, the speed at which I did it was part of what compromise my personal well-being and, yeah. and I wouldn't make those choices again. How did this impact your personal life outside of the organization? Yeah, I mean, it's it's impacted my personal life significantly. I, I had, um, my first anxiety attack was actually um, after I had my second child and um, I had postpartum depression for almost two years, again, which I suffered with uh, in silence. I didn't, didn't say anything. And my first anxiety attack happened while I was struggling with postpartum depression. And what was, again, I think what's really interesting about the story, I had an amazing boss, which who I personally love and is a good friend of mine. Um, She created a very psychologically safe environment, but I was stuck in stigma. So I couldn't say anything to her. Um, Just like you couldn't say anything to your wife, right? Somebody you love, who you know cares about you. Sometimes it's the people closest to us we don't want to share it with because they're the people, because their opinion matters most. Exactly. It just, you just couldn't break that image that I had built. 
Um, and the thing for me was like work was my safe place. Like, but when I got home, I, I could barely hold my child. You know, like I couldn't, I could barely hold my child and I was having crying spells and I could barely function. So like I was high functioning at work. I could lead and manage a business and, and you know, show up as if nothing was happening, nothing was going on. And I got home and I was completely, um, I, I was not, I couldn't function. And so, you know, that's when I really started to get help. So it was with the postpartum depression. My first anxiety attack was on a highway in Houston, Texas. And if anyone's been to Houston, it's like 12 lanes and speeding at, you know, 80 oh miles God. an hour. Um, so it was very scary. Um, and it, 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 it was, you know, what you expect when anxiety attacks, like you just shortness of breath, yeah. you lose ability to think you know, crying spells, you just, you kind of lose control and it's a very scary feeling. Mm -hmm. Especially when you don't know what's actually happened to you. Like at that, you know, in that, in that moment where you first have, like, I still remember my first anxiety attack, like literally stuck with me. It's embedded, but at least now I understand what's happening, you know, biologically, but like, you know, I, I've done a lot of research. I know what's my body's doing. Why, what, how, you know, I'm not going to, I know I'm not going to die. No one's, no, no one's ever died from an anxiety attack. You know, once the adrenaline kind of settles down after five, 10 minutes, you can kind of recenter. So, but it's scary. Like, you know, there's no getting over it. It's terrifying. Um, to, I thought to, I was having a heart attack. Yeah. I was too like, young to have a heart attack, but I thought I was having a heart attack. Yeah, exactly. And I remember someone, the first word I heard, the first time I heard someone say, you just had a panic attack. Mm. And I was like, what? Oh, that's what that was. Like, I didn't even know how to name for it. Like, I was just, what, what, what it was happening. Um, no, and, I think, and this is one of the things that, so when I talk about mental health and, and overall well-being, I, th- I talk about it in three kind of, um, you know, spaces. I talk about the individual journey we all have to take and recognizing the signs of burnout, recognizing the signs of anxiety, recognizing, like you said, Chris, you can read your body, you can sense when it's coming on Mm -hmm. and you've put in coping mechanisms to help yourself. I've done the very same. That is a very individualized journey. Everyone's struggling with different things or life circumstances. Maybe there's underlying other underlying concerns that they have to start, they have to work through as well. So that, that is kind of a, a road we all have to go through and, um, and then I talk about it on an organizational level because work is a huge stressor for a lot of people. And our, you know, organizations have a responsibility to um, provide the culture and the environment and the coping uh, support for, for their, their associates and their employees. And then I talk about it on a societal level because the stigma in our culture and our society is so deep and we have glorified um, hustling and burnout and not sleeping and culturally encouraged it encouraged it and glorified it and basically created a narrative like if you just go on youtube and you know google you know um success all you get these videos about like no pain no gain and you just kind of push through and it and and this whole narrative i listen to this stuff now i'm thinking what are we doing We, we are really creating um a, a conversation or narrative in defining success for people in a way that really compromises their personal well-being, and that's what I grew up with, and that's what I thought for a long time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I got asked recently if, if the workplace is ground zero for this conversation. Um, the workplace, I think, is is a significant part, obviously, of those three pillars. But I think the conversation at home, in schools, you know, in public health environments, needs to be just as aggressive because my 11-year-old has a stigma about seeing a therapist. She hasn't entered the workplace. I think you mentioned that before that you share all of this with your kids. 
And that was something which was for me, like, I, I even though I have a, you know, only have a two year old, nearly three, I think about that. At what age would I share with Robin? Uh, how I, my anxiety, is that going to somehow negatively affect her? Like, I worry about that is, <laughs> mm. uh, as well. Like my, I found out that, you know, my mum suffered from anxiety attacks and again, hid it from us. So we would see my mum, you know, at, you know, there was some times where she was erratic, et cetera. We didn't know as, as kids that that's what was happening. So only years later now, I'm like, oh, wow, my mum was having a panic attack. Mm. But we just didn't know. And she was like, oh, it's fine. And just would just not talk about it to us. And I think it's probably one of the reasons why I never talked about it as well. Um, cause I was like, well, my mom didn't talk about it, So you don't talk about it uh, and no one else talked about it. So <laughs> do that. Um, but what, what, I don't want to go off too off topic. What are those, um, what are the coping mechanisms that you use? Yeah. So I just, I, I also want to reiterate, like I needed medical help and I sought medical help from, from a, from a, you know, a, a provider. So I, I had a therapist mm -hmm. and this is kind of, again, after my first anxiety attack, coupled with my postpartum depression, so I don't, I don't, you know, there is a very important difference between, you know, general well-being and mental health and mental illness, right? So, you know, mental illness is a recognized medically diagnosable illness and that require, and that when you're struggling with a, a mental illness, and I think severe anxiety is, falls in that category, you need to get professional medical support. So I just want to say that. Um, in addition to that, though, I had to make some personal changes in the way that I was living and how I was prioritizing my personal well-being versus my work. So I created over many years what I call my baseline, and I published this again on World Mental Health Day um, and talked about it for the first time. It's a list of things that I know if I don't protect over time will lead me down the path of an anxiety attack. And I can feel it coming. Just like, Christy, I know you have a list of things you yeah. must protect. Mm -hmm. um, so first and foremost for me, my faith is a big part of my well-being. I have a spiritual practice of prayer and meditation and, and that I do, and I, I protect that at like all costs. Even if I'm in the middle of a meeting, or I need to stop and step away. That's something I do. Um, I exercise three times a week. That's the minimum, but I now I'm doing five or six, just kind of as my core. Um, eating all my meals, simple as it is. I would skip meals, uh, work through lunch, work through not have breakfast, just live off coffee, um, which obviously isn't very healthy. Getting seven hours of sleep. And again, I'm not to say that this happens every single night, but I know if I go a number of days without sleeping seven hours, that it'll catch up with me. Um, having breakfast and dinner with my kids, which again, what I wasn't doing for a very long time because I would leave early, come home late or travel excessively, um, going outside once a week. And again, I think you said once a week to just get outside and walk in nature. And I, cause I, that's for me is a really, um, soothing and cathartic experience. And then I very strategically limit, um, my exposure to negative news and media. And I felt, I felt this for the first time in its significance on me during the 2006 election, 2016 election in the US. I, I literally listening to news, I could feel like my body get anxious. Mm -hmm. So um, I have a very curated, highly positive news stream. Um, and I, I literally have to ignore um, negative news and media. And I, I say this uh, very religiously to my team. I take all of my time off. If I have four weeks, I will take every single day off. Um, I don't leave any time off my paid vacation on the table ever. And I think that's, it sounds like um, a really simple thing to do, but we're struggling to get people to take time off right now because many people can't go anywhere and they feel like, you know, they don't want to take time off just to sit at home in the middle of a pandemic, but you have to take that time off to rest and recharge. And, and I take all of it. Yeah. 
Love that. We share so much in common and I'll, I'll add, <laughs> so, uh, I'll, I'll kind of just go over mine. So mine's similar, like exercise is, is huge. Um, and, and again, I like the way you said that if you're doing all of these things, it kind of reduces the anxiety and the like, you can have anxiety, it's like mine's the same thing. So it's exercises, you know, three, four times a week, minimum, um, sleep, definitely. Yeah. I used to stay up to all hours of the night working and then I'm just exhausted in the morning and obviously my cortisol levels, et cetera, et cetera. It just, and it's just a vicious circle. Then I don't, I don't, then I don't work out cause I'm too tired. And this is that vicious circle. And then food, eat, you know, eating healthy. I used to, a lot of caffeine, a lot of sugar. Guess what? I don't sleep. You don't sleep well. We have a lot of sugar and caffeine. And then again, I don't go to the gym. So this is a vicious circle. Uh, and and um, now I can recognize it. And I've also told my wife and business partner Shane and the team like to pull me up on it mm-hmm. as well. If they start seeing me, you know, get into those bad habits, you know, Chris, go on, <laughs> you need to get back on, you know, holding my, they're holding me accountable and holding myself accountable. It's great to have people to help you out. Um, and, uh, like you, I don't, I don't watch the news. Like I, I do not look at the news at all. It's so depressing. I haven't watched it. You know, in the morning when I was younger, I used to, we you know everyone before work, you turn the news on and you're actually getting ready. It's such a terrible way to start your day. It's never yeah. positive. Um, so no, I don't watch the news. And uh, I normally start my day listening to really fun, like comedy, like YouTube podcasts, like fun things, or I'm learning mm-hmm. something on the way to work. So sometimes if I've even got a playlist of affirmations, which sounds like maybe extreme, but it's just like a literally an hour playlist of just positive things. Yeah. Like I, I am statements. You know, I am mm-hmm. happy. I am just, just I, I, all night. Even sometimes I sleep listening to those <laughs> mm-hmm. and I wake up in the morning and I'm like super buzz and positive for the day. Cause all I've been listening to all that long is these really powerful. I am statements, um, as well. And when I'm doing those things, I feel great. Yeah. yeah. And I will tell you now, you know, I am, um, again, I, you know, I'm a, a, a senior leader at one of the largest companies in the world. Um, in the middle of a pandemic, and I shared this with you, Chris, earlier when we were prepping, is that I recently changed jobs after 12 years at a company that I, you know, I, I loved, and to to come to Walmart, which is also another a company that I love, and um, I also had an international move, so I moved from Sweden to Canada, changed jobs in the middle of a pandemic, and I shared this with you also, and I'm happy to share with the audience. I also just recently went through a divorce, um, and. I am doing well, like, and I think that's the thing. I haven't had an anxiety attack for almost a little over, almost a year. Um, And it's purely because I have trained myself to know the signs. I know what my baseline is and I protect it at all costs. Um, And, you know, and it's working. It's, and I think that's, that's, I think it's a testament to all of those things. And I, had I not learned these things, I would be a babbling idiot at this point, I think. I don't know that I could possibly. Yeah, me too. Um, but it, it's it's definitely been, um, you know, a, an important process for me. And I would also just add, you know, it's, I'm constantly working on it every day, but it definitely has worked. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I add, which I mentioned earlier, when I'm feeling that way, is just constantly talking to people about it. And if I'm feeling down or, you know, work great, just it's hard. It's never easy, but just 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 talking about it. And what I'm really, um, you know, so we recently launched a partnership with Thrive Global at Walmart Canada. And what I love about Thrive, it's about all these little micro steps. I think we get this misperception that to um, really take care of ourselves and our well-being, that we have to make these huge life changes. Um, But simple things like sleeping seven hours a day or protecting your health from a, you know, a dietary perspective or, you know, getting out into nature have 
have a scientifically backed, you know, positive impact on our well-being. And and what I love about the partnership with Thrive, you know, is that we're helping to create access to this information to, to all of our associates across Canada, because stuff I didn't know growing up or in my career. And it's really, this is again, part of that education awareness for you as an individual, which is that um, these things make a difference and small micro steps can really help in your overall well-being. And yeah. we're hoping to create that awareness across the whole organization. Cause it's tough, especially if you're already feeling vulnerable, stressed out, anxious, jumping straight in the deep end, it's not going to help exactly. <laughs> and try some huge changes is, 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 is tough to, to be able to do that um, as well. So yeah, and you're much more like, I think Ariana uses the analogy of, you know, the new year's resolution. <laughs> How many people go into the new year's resolution? How long does that last? <laughs> it lasts just for January and then you're back to not exercising and being, eating bad and uh, it doesn't work. And, and again, it's scientifically proven that it doesn't work. Uh, yeah. What are some of the other things then you're doing at Walmart then? To protect. So I would say this first and foremost, we you know we have identified well-being as a strategic priority at Walmart Canada and Walmart across all of our our countries. And um, you know we've done that because we believe that there isn't a trade-off between well-being and growth. And I think that's actually a, a really important mindset shift that we all need to make, because historically well-being has been this thing that we do when it comes to like benefits or you know employee assistance program because we want to reduce absenteeism or, you know, but there's actually a different entry point to this overall. And, and so our belief is that um, our focus on well-being will help people live a happier, healthier work life um, and life, right? And then that will have a positive effect on the business through, you know, growth and, and productivity and other things. And also, you know, um, we want to use our size and scale to make a positive impact in society in this conversation because it is so pervasive and is affecting so many people around the world. And I think the next generation of employees will expect it. So I think having that conversation about the business case for this focus and its prioritization is really important. Um, Chester Elton and I just wrote an article on the business case for focusing on, on well-being. And I think that's the starting point. We had that conversation um, you know, as an executive team and we all agreed, right? And I think that's really important. We're all bought in in the mindset. Mm -hmm. And then we applied the practices to ourselves as an executive team for about three months. Um, are we, you know, healthy? Are we living kind of our best version of ourselves? Are we, you know, do we have our own kind of baselines and integration? So we started with, you know, the CEO and the executive team um, really trying to, to put some of these practices in place and have our own experiences so we could share our own stories because, our sharing our journeys and our stories creates the cultural permission for the rest of the organization to do the same. Destigmatizing the conversation is so important. So, so many members of the Canadian, the Walmart Canada executive team have shared their personal stories, have opened up and talked about, you know, what they're struggling with and how they're improving their well-being. And then it's about education and awareness and access to tools and resources. So um, we've had lots of educational sessions with leaders about well-being. Um, and we're making more resources available to them, like telehealth providers that we've made available during the pandemic so they can um, get professional medical support if they need it. The, the um, Thrive app, which we've launched across all of our associate base so that people can start to learn about how to integrate micro steps. Um, we recently had um, a focus on specifically on anxiety because we know that the rates of anxiety and burnout are increasing exponentially. And we had um, Chester Elton and Adrian Gostick, who just launched, who just released their book on anxiety in the workplace, come to, um, you know, and host webinar sessions about anxiety. And then we we bought 3,500 copies of, of the book and sent it to our top 3,500 leaders who lead the large majority of our associates. 
Um, and, and on so that point, though, Nabila, I want to stop you for a second there. I, one thing I love you did when you, all of that's amazing, but one thing that I think was important is storytelling. And when you bought those books, The Anxiety About Work, you actually included a personal note of your, your story. And I think that's incredible, yeah. credi- incredibly powerful. There's one thing sending a book to your, you know, your leaders saying, hey, read this. But there's another thing actually saying, this is me. You know, this mm-hmm. is my journey. This is me being vulnerable. And then them reading that note, then reading the book. So I just wanted to point that out. And I was, I was actually surprised at the, I mean, the impact it's had. I, there's been so many associates who've reached out and just said, thank you. And, um, you know, um, again, the personal note was, you know, really insignificant. I didn't think about it when, when we decided to do that, but that um, has been a really big impact. So absolutely. And then I would also just add for the, again, all the HR leaders in the organization, um, we've also assembled a task force. So in December, we put together a cross-functional task, task force. So the compliance team, uh, the you know our operational safety and security team that are really focused on health and safety in our stores and our DCs, um, the the uh, total awards team, and um, you know different members of our our leadership in, in the operations. And we assembled a task force, and we said, you know what. What does the space of well-being look like and workplace well-being look like? We brought in external ex-speakers and, and other uh, well-being advocates from outside the organization. We listened. We brought in the Mental Health Commission of Canada. We learned, and we built a kind of a strategy and a frame for what we believe well-being is, and a roadmap over the next three to five years of how we're going to create a culture of well-being um, and the programs that we we want to accompany that. So, what I also love about what we've done is that. We've taken this out of this idea that this is just a total wars activity and it is a cross-functional organizational movement. Um, the other thing I'm really proud of and in partnership with the Mental Health Commission of Canada is we have committed to, um, just like you have our leaders are first aid certified. So if in case of an emergency, they know how to respond. Um, mental, the Mental Health Commission of Canada is, is the first, Canada is the first uh, country to issue a voluntary certification to be a mental health safe workplace. And part of that is having mental health first aid certified leaders. And so we've committed to having a thousand of our leaders mental health first aid certified so that when our associates and our operations need urgent support in in a mental health crisis, we have trained, educated leaders who can step into support. So um, we've just recently made that commitment and we're on the journey to do that. And so many leaders have raised their hand and said, I want to be first in line to get that certification. So That's amazing. education, awareness, access, and the storytelling has been a really big part of our journey. That's amazing, especially because so many leaders and us are unprepared for that. As you said, it's like, how do I take care of my employees and my team if I can't even take care of Chris? <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, so I think it's super important that we have those conversations and have that certification. And it's great that you have it recognized beyond those functions, like you mentioned, and it's part of the DNA of the organization, the why, the culture. Um, and it is directly linked back to the business results, as you said. It's not something fluffy. Um, yeah. yeah. Deloitte did this really great uh, report recently that where they went in and they looked at the S&P 500 and they looked at companies um, and how much they were spending on well-being. And over a six-year period, they showed that companies that you know spend uh, more uh, on well-being can show a four to six times return on investment on every dollar they spend on well-being. So I think, again, the, the, the financial business case for this as a focus is starting to emerge more concretely. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I see this as the same kind of journey that companies have been on when it comes to sustainability or diversity and equity inclusion. We always start with what's the business case? What's the why do we do this you know, in the workplace? 
And then we move on to once everyone agrees that the business case is there, which exists for well-being as well, then we move on to, well, well this is expected and you know, required to attract and retain talent. And then I think the really, you know, I think differentiating companies will say, well, this is the right thing to do. I was about to say it was yeah. out of my mouth. <laughs> and, um, eventually, I think that organizations that are at the forefront of this journey will well-being will be a competitive advantage for them, just like diversity, equity, inclusion, and just like our, the position on, on ESG and sustainability. And I would even go far enough, far enough uh, to say, and, and Ariana wrote a great, Ariana Huffington wrote a great article about this on Earth Day, which is that you know well-being is a prerequisite for sustainability, and well-being is a prerequisite for diversity, equity, inclusion, um, because you really can't worry about plastics in the ocean or deforestation or be there for your colleagues to create an inclusive environment when you are struggling to function. Yeah, exactly, a hundred percent. One of the employee populations have been affected and uh, a lot during this is actually the HR leaders themselves. You know, the last 15 months have been really tough, really tough. Yeah. Um, how are you taking care of your own team? Because yeah, uh, right. <laughs> uh, we don't, uh, I say we, but HR leaders uh, are uh, some of the biggest culprits <laughs> of taking, okay, taking care of themselves and putting, we always hear these sort of put your own oxygen mask on first, but the last 15 months is kind of taking that to a whole nother level. For sure. And so, um, you know, for me, again, you know, I shared my baseline uh, with my team and my direct reports. And I asked them to think about their baseline and share their baseline with the rest of the team to create accountability partners. And you said it earlier, Chris, you, you have met family members and friends that hold you to count on the things that you must protect. So we have accountability partners within the team that hold us at work accountable for um, our baseline. So I think creating that, that practice of sharing each other's baselines, having accountability partners in the workplace that can hold you to account and hold you accountable to that. And then sharing each other's stories so that we know what we struggle with and we can we know each other's stories has also been part of that uh, journey. Um, and then I would also say like we, simple things, simple practices, like we start every meeting with it, everyone has to do two minutes, how are you? And it can't be work-related, that's the only rule. So two minutes, how are you? And two minutes feels like a long time, uh, doesn't feel like a long time until you're like trying to <laughs> talking about how you're doing yeah and i'll share this personal that i know it's working because um we have been in lockdown in in toronto and in ontario for a for a large part of the year and most recently we just came out of eight weeks of stay-at-home order just recently and as we were going into the most recent stay-at-home order i was having this two-minute check-in how are you with each of my direct reports one of my managers said and i quote um, if I could sign up for a medically induced coma and sleep through this next eight, eight weeks, I'd rather do that than do another stay-at-home order, unquote. Wow. I was like, whoa. Um, okay, let's, let's talk about that. Um, but the fact that this individual was comfortable enough sharing that with me is something that was, it was a sign to me that the culture and the conversation we were having as a team was working. Because mm -hmm. then I could, I could respond and support um, and that's, that's what we're doing as a people team to really protect ourselves. I will, all the other thing, and I really believe in this, the Potential Project was another organization that we work with at Walmart Canada, um, is really this concept between wise compassion and empathy. Um, so I talk a lot about empathetic hijack, especially as HR practitioners, because we are the kind of responders to a lot of the different situations and crises in the organization. And I'm very sensitive to this as well. Um, the difference between empathy and compassion and not 
no, not allowing yourself to be kind of mentally empath like empathetically hijacked and your emotions, you know, so affected by the experiences of other people, um, while still being able to, you know, show show the right level of compassion and support. Um, that's a concept I think is really important for HR practitioners and and. The potential project is has got great literature on that and, and shared with HBR as well. Because yeah, that's tough. Because naturally, as a HR team, you're exposed to this 10x most leaders, if not more. Yeah. You're hearing it across over how many employees you have now? We have a hundred thousand. Yeah, you're hearing it exponentially, and your team and only having to deal with their own personal mental health and well-being, but now taking on the responsibility of everyone else's and all of the leaders around them, which is why it's even more important that we empower our leaders to have these conversations and prepare them, provide them the right skills because we can't do yes. it as a HR department. It doesn't lie yes. with HR, it lies with everyone yes. throughout, throughout the organization um, as well. Well, look, uh, I, I'm just like, I'm so happy we're having this conversation. Like a year ago, it would have been so hard or it would have felt really tough to be having this conversation. But speaking with people like you and Chester and so many others now, it's like really empowered me and so many people listening. The messages that we get as well, it's like just, and even the conversations that it's opened up for me personally with friends and family, it's like, cause I'm real. <laughs> I get like emotional just thinking about it, to be honest, uh, as well, because if you, if you live, if you're listening right now and you're one of those people like myself and Nabila, you know how, you know, you know exactly what we're talking about. Um, what, 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 I don't want to say the word advice, but like, what message would you give to people that perhaps are listening right now that are feeling the way that we're describing and, you know, ha struggling with anxiety and depression and just haven't really spoken about or haven't, haven't come out and, and had that conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think my, my advice to anyone who's individually struggling is, is reach out and, and get support and ask for help, depending on the, you know, the severity of the situation whether that's a family member or a medical professional, I think you know, just asking for help. And to your point, talk about it. Yeah. Talk, you know, find the partner or the person, your the colleague who you can talk about it with. That's that's the kind of ask for help and, and that's the first step. Um, and then I think from there, you know, it's really starting to build that framework for yourself and know the signs so that you can increase your, your individual resilience and your individual coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is something else that I, we believe in is that, you know, organizational resilience starts with individual resilience. If each and every one of our associates can build their individual resilience, then collectively as an organization, we're more resilient. And resiliency, as we all know, in this like accelerating, crazy, ever-changing group of world is going to be a differentiator. hundred percent. Yeah, and, and for families, I mean, people. I mean, like, just think about our lives, like our ability to be resilient in this world is going to be something that's going to differentiate, differentiate our, our happiness, our well-being as individuals. So, and then I think the other piece of advice is define your own success across multiple spectrums and don't let anyone else define it for you. And this is something that was really important to me. So now when I think of success, I think of success about on a multiple level. And I think about like, what does mental success look like for me? What does spiritual success look like for me? What does you know emotional success look like for me? What does physical success look like for me? You know, what does social success look like for me? And you know, and it, that's going to be different for everybody. What is you know what kind of you know how do I want to affect the environment around me in a in a way that is meaningful? So let's get this concept of being successful outside of just the workplace and into other dimensions of our lives because we need to redefine success. Yeah, I love that. I've never thought about it that way, even personally. 
to, to look at it like that, but you're, you're right. Because I have a lot of success in the business realm and with the work that we're doing, but I never separate that. It's something because we've been kind of conditioned to look at success from this one in this from this one lens, which is kind of part of the issue in the first place, right? Which leads to burnout because we're always running towards this, as opposed to kind of breaking it down into those different areas that you mentioned. Yeah, that's super insightful. And also to your point, don't let someone else's definition of success be yours because that's where you can get into real trouble there. Uh, you know, we kind of see the same thing happening with like social media, right? You look on Instagram or thing, you just see like the, the best version of that person. And it's just a completely misleading uh, um, uh, as well. No one, no one posted their bad day. No, no one posted a video of LinkedIn of them having a, a bad day or a panic attack. They just post all the great things that are happening as well. Yeah. And I think that's, I will, I, I think this is the thing I don't prescribe to the idea that this concept of you can have it all. Like you can be perfect at home and perfect at work and perfect. in you know, the physical, the, the well, I, mean, I just, I think it's all like, it's all a fallacy. It's yeah, you're right. Um, so if that's the perception of success that you're working towards, that's not the truth. And so I think we just need to, again, unlearn that concept and realize that that's not real. Yeah. Just like what we see on social media often is not real, right? It's a curated and like very, you know, um, specified story. Well, um, give yourself a break. Yeah. <laughs> give yourself a break. Like that's, we're so hard on ourselves. Like, yeah. you know, we are, it's just give yourself a break. You know, you don't have to be perfect. Yeah. No one's perfect. And uh, there is no perfection. It doesn't exist. Right. So but I want to use a personal example with this, just this um, well-being circle that I talked about, because that's kind of those are the dimensions of well-being that, that when I talk about well-being, I talk about physical, mental, spiritual, emotional, um, social and environmental. Um, you know, I think the other really important piece of advice I give people is get comfortable saying no, because we're really uncomfortable saying no. And actually, Adrian Gostick, Gostick just wrote an article about this, what I recommend everybody reading, read. But, you know, when you're tapped on the shoulder at work or or you're asked by a family member to do something or whatever the circumstance is, when you when when that's a when that compromises another dimension of how you define success, you need to pause and really ask yourself, like, is it is it worth it? Is it okay? Um, so often we say yes because we feel pressured to say yes and other in so many dimensions of our lives at the cost of you know our well-being. And I think that's a that's a muscle that we all need to work on, uh, myself included. I agree. Um, you also have uh you're, uh, you're doing some work with your own live streaming now, right? <laughs> I want to, I want to share it. Cause like, it's such great. I, I only learned, learned about it today. So I'm going to be tuning in. So tell everyone a bit about that. Yeah. So, you know, um, at Walmart Canada, we've been on a journey to really, you know, explore what does it mean to be an anti-racist organization? So after the murder of George Floyd, we, you know, we've had a long history of working to create an diversity equity inclusion at Walmart, but after the murder of George Floyd, I think we all had to step back and ask ourselves, is, is it enough? And of course the answer is no. Um, so we really took a critical look at our diversity equity inclusion approach. And you know what we realized is that we weren't really having the difficult conversations. We weren't having the courageous conversations, uh, conversations about race, religion, ethnicity, you know, inequity, um, you know, some of what's, a lot of what's happening in society at large, we weren't talking about them openly and um, you know, in, in the workplace like we could have been. So we launched this theory, it's called Courageous Conversations, where we have the really difficult discussions um, in the diversity, equity, inclusion space. Again, for education, for awareness, um, and for us to you know, create a more inclusive environment for our associates. More recently in Canada, um, there's been some really horrifying news that's come to um, you know, the, everyone's attention. 
And, and that's the history of residential schools in Canada. And there's been discoveries in BC and other locations in Canada where um, there's been findings of unmarked graves of Indigenous children, Indigenous person. And I think, you know, Canada is coming to a reckoning with its history. Um, there's also been recent attacks on uh, Muslim Canadians, a really horrifying attack in London, Ontario, and more recent attacks on Muslim women in, in Alberta. Um, so we, of course, you know, we're having courageous conversations about these, these things. And we decided to take the conversation live on LinkedIn because we know that it's not a conversation we just need to have at Walmart Canada. It's a conversation we need to have as a community, as a yes. business community. Um, and so we launched our first live LinkedIn Live Courageous Conversation on Monday. And it was about, you know, the exclusion of Indigenous persons in Canada and the road to inclusion. We had the CEO of, of Indigenous Works join us. I highly encourage if, if anyone's interested in this topic to watch it. You'll learn a lot. And then the question is, what do we do about it as a business community? And that's really what we want to get to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just wanted to bring that up as a side note, because I think it's super powerful. And it, a lot of companies sometimes do these as like a tick the box. Um, but you, not only is it courageous conversations, but you're now putting it out there for the public on live, which is a, which is a big which is a big deal. You know, not, not many companies, the WalMarts of this world, are gonna go live on LinkedIn and open up that conversation, especially around some of these topics that many companies and leaders are afraid to even talk about um, as well. So and I think that's, that's amazing. Why we did it because we've been doing it for a year, and I think we've gotten comfortable more comfortable and it has made a huge difference. We're having conversations today that we were not having a year ago. Yeah. Yesterday, um, uh, Hayo, our CEO at Walmart Canada and myself hosted a listening session with our Muslim associates and allies to talk about the recent attacks that have happened uh, with Muslim Canadians. And, you know, again, you know, we're listening to learn and understand and have compassion for the experience, but we also want to know what else we should be doing to create, you know, uh, you know, and use, how do we use our size and skill to make an impact when it comes to these inequities that are happening in society across Canada? So um, I think a year into, a year after the murder of George Floyd, it's, it has to not just be about conversation, it has to be about action. And we're committed to using our size and skill in the best way possible. We also, Chris, just made a um, commitment to, to donate uh, through the Walmart Foundation $20 million over the next five years to specifically tackle societal inequities in amongst uh, food insecurity and economic opportunity for black and indigenous Canadians. And um, so we'll be working with community partners over the next five years to address societal um, and systemic racism and, and inequities that exist in the system over the, uh, in those two areas. Amazing. Well, thanks. And, and people can follow that on, if they follow the for, Walmart Canada LinkedIn, right? Um, page so and, and yourself personally on your personal page on LinkedIn, which will, if yes. you, Ivan, if you're listening, can you put the links in the chat for, for everyone? That would be great. We'll include those for everyone. Yeah, we, we look forward to it growing and developing and, and really also learning from other companies and what other organizations are doing, both in Canada and across the world. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you for sharing your journey and experience. It's been super inspiring, even for someone like me who's still on that journey to hear other people talk about it. It, it means more than you can imagine. And to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in as well. Uh, make sure you follow Nabilia on LinkedIn and, and and the amazing work that Chester's doing as well. We mentioned Chester Elton and Adrian Gostick. Check out their book as well, Anxiety at Work. Um, apart from that, Bila, uh, I look forward to seeing you again soon, but all the best until then. Thank you, Chris. Take care. Bye-bye.